Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself And there's some stories I can tell you The final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon for the first episode of a new season. Jeff, we're in Dubai. We've had a lot going on over the last couple of weeks, over the last couple of months, over the last six months, but it feels nice that we are doing this podcast and recording this podcast after perhaps the, the best moment in Australian cricket after 2018. By contrast, the previous episode that you'll pick up on the feed is perhaps the worst moment in Australian cricket for several decades. <laughs> um, yeah, I suppose if you jump from one to the other, it's going to be a sizable contrast, but we've had six months in the interim that's been extremely busy. You and I have been on opposite sides of the world, so we haven't been podcasting in that time, but we're going to recap all of that later once we get done with this series, but there's so much going on in this series that we just need to concentrate on this first. Yeah, we couldn't not do an episode after what Australia achieved yesterday, drawing the first Test match against Pakistan. So you're dead, you're dead right, Jeff. So there's, there's a new chief executive, the, the chairman's extended his term, uh, there's been a new TV deal, a new radio deal, there are a couple of reviews that Cricket Australia uh, have been uh, involved in around culture. So there, there is a huge amount of information that we've taken in over six months and need to talk to you about, uh, as we always have done on the final word, but we're going to park it. So at the end of this test series, and you can expect a lot more on that. As we can, Jeff, uh, we will do an episode exclusively devoted to your upcoming release, your book, which comes out on the 1st of November. But to begin, just I'm going to insist that you give it a plug because it's coming out soon. People can pre-order, so I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that we get that out there nice and early. Oh, God. All right, here we go. Yeah, published by Hardy Grant. The book's called Steve Smith's Men Behind Australian Cricket's Fall. It's uh, about... It's about the ball tampering tour which we were on, which we podcasted about so extensively and wrote about and talked about a lot at the time, but it, it's also going back a lot further than that into mm. um, how did it get to this point? How, how did how did that episode happen? Because it's it's far from happening in isolation. The more you follow the threads back, you f- the more you find they're connected to things further back and further back and further back. So it's a much broader look at, at that than just you know what happened with sandpapering a cricket ball one day, but it's also not entirely serious and glum. I've tried to make it as entertaining as I could in telling the story of what a wild and strange couple of weeks that was. Yeah, and you've done a fantastic job. It was a privilege to go through the book with you as you were working through that process, and you can now pre-order it in all the usual places where you pre-order your books. Yeah, I assume so. All the uh, Amazons and Booktopias and stuff will have it. Um, You can look at Hardy Grant, the publisher, on on their website. I'm sure there'll be uh, ways to to pre-order physical copies if you want those, or the e-book as well, um, if you just want it on your Kindle. While you were buried 
away riding for six months. I was travelling with the England women's team. I was in Zimbabwe with the Australian men when they had their uh, limited overs tour there. I was in Nottingham when Australia had 481 taken off them in a one-day international uh, and covered the England-India series, which is a brilliant test series. So we've... We've been apart, but now we're back together. So a lot more from the final word over the next six months or so. Yeah, and 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 when you said earlier, you know, great achievement for Australia to draw a test against Pakistan, people might sort of chuckle at that. But we are talking about one of the greatest escapes in test cricket history. Absolutely, and we're going to talk a lot about that in in the second segment of the show, unpacking the test match as we always do. Um, what we were able to do this week, again, just a little bit indulgent at this start, but we'll bear with us, is that we we broadcast the test match, which was something that we hopes we would do and, and we were able to engineer a way that we could. It's something we've had a passion for for many years. Indeed, the first time that you and I broadcasted together was four years ago in this corresponding test match from Dubai, sitting on your couch in, in Brunswick in Melbourne. But um, <laughs> by contrast, this time we were, we were in the in the commentary box and we were blessed with a magnificent contest and some wonderful support along the way. Yeah, so this is the interesting thing. We've, we've long held the view that they're needs to be radio coverage of Australia's test tours, any, any test match Australia plays, ideally any game, but, you know, tests are obviously for us the most important format. Um, and so that's something that, that I've been doing since 2013 and, and you joined us in 2014 to, to broadcast Australian tours overseas, but it, it was always a pretty, um, um, makeshift operation, sort of doing it via whatever means we could find to get the updates. I, you know, I've done it off text updates on websites when, when there's no vision available. <laughs> Creating it, a la McGilvray in the thirties, <laughs> but um, but wanting to make sure that there is voice broadcast um, radio commentary, and and so we did this Pakistan Australia tour in twenty fourteen, as you say, from a long way away, um, and and somehow miraculously we managed to do this tour from the ground, uh, from a proper commentary box, uh, setting up a proper commentary call with. Uh, with some excellent co-commentators who are, who are experts in the game, and uh, somehow it all came together. Yeah, it did, and we're going to be back at Abu Dhabi next week. So thanks again for the support of that call throughout the week. It's been a, a real roller coaster ride the last few weeks, pulling it all together. It's a lot more complicated than I perhaps expected when I managed to secure the rights, but um, it, it was all worth it for that final session yesterday, Jeff. When when we realised we were onto a winner with that Test match itself, when it, but you just got throughout the course of the day. I, at, at no point did I think it wasn't going to go down to the last half an hour. It, it just had that. It was something in the air, wasn't there? There was there was optimism. You know, there was some hope. The the way that the way that Kuwaitra was batting, I, I still my realistic brain still said one wicket goes and they will fall apart. And as soon as Travis Head went after the lunch break, I thought, well, here we go. It'll it'll be over in half an hour. Um, but what we saw was literally one of the great performances ever in Test cricket from Usman Kuwaitra and. Uh, one that was pretty close from Tim Payne as well, I reckon. Yeah, being able to have the chance to tell that story to people on the on the radio airwaves. Obviously, this test match is only on pay television. Mm. Received a fantastic email this morning from Stephen Jolly, who has been involved with Vision Australia for a long time. That that used to be um, part of what you and I spoke about on air with White Line Wireless at, at the very start was about making sure that there was radio commentary for those who are blind or vision impaired, and the fact that that's been received. Uh, this week, loud and clear. Again, it's, it's 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 something that's always been in the background of why we wanted to do this. Yeah, absolutely. It's been one of the the underpinning reasons that if your if your vision's affected, you can't follow television commentary because they don't give you a full description. You you know you'll know what the score is. You'll know that someone's just hit a boundary, but you're not going to know necessarily what the ball's doing, what the batsman's doing. Whereas radio has to give you that full detailed description of mm. of every delivery and, and and every moment on the field. We have to paint the picture. Um, and so when we were first being contacted, 
contacted around White Line Wireless by vision impaired people thanking us for doing the call because they could follow test cricket. They could follow tours that they otherwise couldn't follow. It was extremely meaningful. And, and yeah, that's part of the reason that we still want to do it today. And it's having called for five days consecutively. It's why my voice is so uh, scratchy today. But- I, I did the maths this morning, Adam. Uh, 21 and a quarter hours each we did during that test match <laughs> on air. Um, so, you know, Usman Khawaja batted for 12, but... Uh- <laughs> <laughs> it was a... Mo- <laughs> I sincerely say this, I can't wait for us to do it all again next week. There's nothing I enjoy more in this world we've landed in than calling Test Cricket, so it was a real privilege. Oh, it is, and particularly the end of that, the last couple of hours of that match where suddenly everybody was jumping on and everybody was going, <laughs> this is this is a truly momentous event in Test Cricket. This is something people will talk about in 20 years' time. You realise just how lucky we are to be in the position to bring that story to people. Final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Brought to you, of course, by Wisdom Cricket Monthly, the best cricket magazine in the world. We're thrilled to continue our association with them, Jeff. Well, yeah, we've been doing the broadcast on wisdom.com for, for the test match and uh, have that long-running association with this magazine and uh, we love the work they do and uh, they seem to love the work we do. So it, it all works out. Everybody <laughs> loves each other. Isn't that nice? As you said during the week on the broadcast, the great thing about Wisdom Cricket Monthly, it's a magazine that's not afraid to play its shots, to be a bit different. Uh, to, to, it's light and shade. That It's willing to be journalism on one hand and, and, and talk about so- stories in a detailed, in-depth way and also be quite whimsy and some of the, the lovely cricket writing you can expect along the way. Yeah, a lot of it's fun on the other hand and although there's a focus on England cricket, it's not just that. There's a, a focus on cricket around the world. They've got correspondents from every cricket country and so if you're an Australian cricket enthusiast, don't feel like why would I subscribe to Wisdom because it's an English mag. Your interests will be well served as well. Uh, Mel Jones, uh, our, our dear friend, is now uh, a columnist uh, speaking of Australian cricketers. She's she's writing this month about the Women's World T20. That's happening in the Caribbean next month. I can't wait to get over there myself to cover it, but that's, it's action-packed, including the front cover, which is about that tournament and the England side. They won the World Cup last year. We were there at that at Lords, that final, that wonderful final against India and they're trying to double up and win the World T20 as well. Yeah, but the Australian team is also flying at the moment. Um, they just dismantled New Zealand yeah. in, a, uh, in a series and um, also that was really well received on TV back home in Australia. So the women's game is just growing at an almost terrifying rate. It's terrific. It's worth keeping an eye on England series to Sri Lanka, which is coming up. This is the men's side of the game, I should say. Uh, they're, they're already started the white ball tour. The test will be fascinating. Uh, the England side are far from stable despite the fact that they won uh, 4-0 in their recent series against India. Ben Jones from CrickViz does a real big deep dive on the numbers and the analysis. We've had the great privilege of working with CrickViz for a while now, certainly in the series we're covering between Australia and Pakistan. And when these young um, analysts get their hands, you know, get their teeth into the data, they can they can find some fascinating trends. Yeah, well, this is the um, the thing that we've been discussing for quite a long time, and the likes of uh, Jared Kimber has been writing about, and Tim Whitmore yep. and so on, is that. Um, cricket statistics are pretty outdated and and they're pretty bare you know when you compare it to the kind of uh, analysis that you get in American sports where it's all about you know a, a statistical category doesn't tell you much someone averages X with the bat okay but when do they make their runs uh, what sort of situations do they make them in what kind of conditions um, it, there, there are so many ways that you can drill into that data and find 
actual really useful, valuable things. And so these people are they're, they're taking a deeply creative approach to mathematics. They're mm. they're having to come up with a conceptual um, sort of abstract approach to how do we extract the most useful information from what just seems like a mass of numbers. Um, and they're able to pull that out and turn it into stories which are, are actually compelling. So even if you're not necessarily following the, the team or the players that they're analysing, the way they're analysing the data in itself is a story and it is a development in cricket. So I'd encourage people to um, get up to date with it. Yeah, that, that's really well put. In terms of interviews, Mathali Raj, the Indian women's captains, interviewed in this edition. Uh, we've also got Keaton Jennings, the England Open. I've had a chat to Phil Walker. I gather it's a lovely chat. Keaton Jennings is a, a very nice human being indeed. Uh, he, uh, he had a tough summer, but he's been picked for that Sri Lanka tour. Then there's the columnist, Jonathan Lewis, probably the informed sports writer in the world right now after his wonderful World Cup with the England football team. He's back on the cricket beat at the moment. Moment. To be fair, he's getting stuck into Australia, but I'm sure it'll be fun to read all the same. And Kumar Sangakara is uh, un- unleashing his next Titans of Cricket column. Uh, it's not a bad get having Kumar Sangakara writing for your magazine once a month. Uh, and last but not least, we have Daniel Norcross, who's been a, a guest of the final word quite a few times over the journey, uh, waxing lyrical about Joss Butler, the man he loves to watch and loves to talk about more than any other. So Wisdom Cricket Monthly. The deal we have with the final word, and this is the best bit, right? Wisdom.com forward slash final word. You get six editions for 15 bucks. This is the, the digital edition. So if digital you're in Australia, edition. you don't have to wait for it to get posted to you. It'll pop up on your iPad or phone or however you're accessing it. It's just such a great offer. Six editions. So if you're listening in the UK, it's six editions for eight quid. $15 for those in Australia. I mean, for, for a magazine that has some of the best cricket writing in the world, we said before, there's no better magazine going around. That really is a steal. And in doing so, you can support the journalism that makes the world go around in the cricket world. There's a reason why cricket has such a rich history with writing and needs to be paid for somehow. Yeah, well, exactly. Especially in this new uh, day and age when the rivers of gold to print have long since dried up. <laughs> Um, people like us make our living by uh, working for digital outlets and they need to find a way to stay alive. Hop on wisdom.com forward slash final word. I'm Daniel Norcross and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Chief Lemon. We're up to the fun bit, talking about the test match, as we will in great depth now. Let's go um, back to front and go to the final day first. Usman Khawaja, it was uh, it was such a special thing to witness. 141, but that doesn't do it justice. If you've just seen the number on the scorecard, you'll, you might be duped into thinking it's just yet another ton in a drawn test match. This was an awful lot more than that, Jeff. Well, and, and it's not even going back to the final day. It's, you can start on the fourth day if you want. He batted <laughs> Just through, after lunch. He batted through almost all the way through the final five sessions of a test match. He started, what, they Pakistan batted 20 minutes, half an hour after lunch and, right, yep. and declared. In he came. He was 50 not out at stumps and uh, 141 by the time he was dismissed late in the final session. They had 14 overs left, so just under an hour to go, I reckon. So uh, that is frankly extraordinary. 524 minutes he batted. Only one person's batted for longer than that in the fourth innings in the history of Test cricket, Mike Atherton. At Johannesburg in 1995, like. which is one of the fam- most famous performances sure. in Test cricket, resisting yeah. Al- Alan Donald, uh, you know, with his back buggered and the, it's getting dark and all the rest of it. It's, you know, an extraordinary Test performance, and Kawaja's second only to that in terms of time batted. He said he was felt like he was getting heat stroke in the second session on the fifth day, and somehow batted for another three hours. That was the bit I found most interesting when we spoke to him on the Wisdom.com coverage yesterday. It's that it wasn't as though he 
was in pretty good nick until the end, then lost it. Tim Payne faced 70% of the balls in their partnership because Kawaja was spent, and yet he continued to not only survive, but kept the ball ticking over. He kept, yep. the, he kept it working both ways. He, he never uh, stopped playing his shots. The reverse sweep was a feature of his innings all the way to the very end. It's admirable on so many levels. The mental strength, the emotional duress he must have been under, the heat strike he was sure he was suffering. It just adds to all, it all, you put it in into the pot and stir it up and you spit it out and say it's got to be in a top handful of fourth innings ever played in the history of the cricket. And, and the thing was, it worked because when he started playing reverse sweeps, we were bemused. Um, on, on the commentary, we were saying what's going on. Brendan Julian was on our call talking yep. about, you know, why a left-hander's reverse sweeping out of the rough is insanely dangerous. But Kawaja played it 24 times. I reckon he nailed 23 of them. There's one that I can remember where he mishit the shot. Aside from that, um, everyone came out of the middle. The first few went for boundaries. Then they had a permanent third man for him to try to stop that. So he was getting singles for it. But he was getting off strike with those singles, and he was annoying Yassir Shah, the leg spinner, who he was routinely. Yassir was the one who was playing the reverse against. I don't think he played it against anyone else from memory. The ball spinning into him, he'd play it, and then Yassir started changing his lines and bowling differently. So it worked. It disrupted the Pakistan attack, and it meant they couldn't work effectively against him. Yeah, how he disrupted Muhammad Abbas's length as well. That was fascinating. That first session of the fifth day, Muhammad Abbas bowling with the keeper back, as he normally would. He was the man that took three wickets with the score in 87 on day four to open Australia up. Three for none. And I I still can't believe I let this slip. I did not headline my piece that day. Australia gets hit by a bus. (laughs) Well, you might get an opportunity next week. He's bowling so well at the moment. There's every chance he'll do it again in Abu Dhabi. But um, those three wickets fall. So Kawaja knew the next day he needed to try something different to ensure that Abbas couldn't find his groove early. So he, he charged him maybe 10 of the first 12 balls he faced on the fifth morning, which caused Safraz to come up to the stumps, yeah. which just changed the way of Bass bowled. Now, granted, he beat him outside the off stump with the keeper up, but had, had Kawaja edged a Bass bowling at roughly 130 clicks, it's unlikely Safraz would have gloved it anyway. Yeah. So it was just, again, it, it, it illustrated what a thoughtful innings it was from Kawaja. And, and when we say charged, we don't mean sort of galloping down a la someone trying to completely thwack a spinner over long on. He just walked at him Terminator yes. style. Before the ball was bowled. Um, yeah. And it was fascinating seeing the side on camera footage of that because by the time Kawaja met the ball, he was like three, four metres down the pitch. He was way out of his crease, just walking gently at it and then playing the defensive shot or playing a, a drive. You know, not really attacking the ball with Venom, but making sure that that reverse hadn't had time to actually hoop by the time he got it. And uh, it, it was a fascinating contest, especially during that second session of day five where Abbas was getting it to go everywhere and Kawaja was surviving. In the first innings, we saw the first technical change that Kawaja had made, which was getting that front pad out of the way. Uh, we've seen... Usman Khawaja play in Sri Lanka, in Bangladesh. Didn't get a gig in India last year, but enough in these conditions to know that he's had trouble, and the numbers reflect that. His highest score in Asia until four days ago was 26. Made 85 in the first innings, and the way he played spin from the get-go, backing away, showing all three stumps, and backing or investing in his technique that he could see the ball early enough to play it off the back foot. Again... it, to me, it's this, it's this idea that he's evaluated it, he's unpicked it, he's started again, uh, he's, he's practiced something new and it's paid off. It's mm. sort of proof that you, you're never the completely finished product as an international cricketer. You've always got to keep changing and evolving your game. It's like, you know, one of those computer wizards with a laptop. He's pulled the whole thing apart, cleaned it all and reassembled it. And, yeah. and now it's all working. Um, he, 
would have made 100 in the first innings too. The, the only thing that brought him undone was bounce, which was the one thing he would never have expected out of this wicket because he had Bill Al-Asif, the, the off-spinner, with this strange wristy action. He's almost a wrist spinner who bowls an off-break, yeah. a la Muralitharan in terms of the hand, although he doesn't have the same completely um, weird once-in-a-lifetime arm, <laughs> or once, probably once ever. There'll only be one Muralitharan arm, I reckon. Mm. But um, he, was, he was putting a lot of overspin on the ball and lobbing it up, and so he was getting huge bounce in the first innings. So that's what got Kawadra top edge in the first innings when he was out for 85. In the second innings, Bilal couldn't get that bounce because the pitch had died even more. Um, and so uh, Kawadra was able to handle him pretty easily, even though he was turning the ball away from the bat. We were trying to work out yesterday where this inning sits alongside other fourth innings gems. Uh, Ricky Ponting in 2005 at Old Trafford stands out. Uh, the famous Slasher Mackay innings in 1960-61 in Adelaide as well. This has got to sit right there with those. Uh, and, and I think that this could be... It sounds weird to say about a bloke who's 31 years old, but it could be the making of Usman Kawaja as a test batsman. It could be the, the thing that gives him the confidence to be a truly senior member of this side. Well, we've seen him make great hundreds on seeming wickets against good pace attacks. Um, but the question marks were always, can he adapt away from home? Can he adapt in dry spinning conditions? Um, and he's just ticked every one of those boxes so comprehensively yeah. that you can't imagine it being questioned ever again. Um, of course, when someone pulls off an absolutely freakish performance, it's kind of unfair to expect them to just back it up and do it again, because that's a once in a career um, effort in terms of being able to to bat through that many sessions. No one's no one does that, so we can't necessarily expect him just to click and suddenly turn it on. But Australia desperately need, with Smith and Warner out, they need other players to uh, who've been around for a while to step up and deliver at that senior level. They didn't get it from the Marsh brothers in this test match. They need it from them. Absolutely, those those two have to deliver um, over the next few tests. But Kawaja is the other one who's had all the experience, played a lot of matches, and needed to uh, to deliver, and he's done so. This might be a good time, Jeff, to bring in our producer from Wisdom.com Cricket and a dear friend of ours, uh, Andrew Donison, uh, to discuss the the other supporting actors, if you like, in this in this uh, feature film that was day five. Yeah, well, uh, well, Dono watched it all alongside us in in the commentary box and saw, saw every ball and uh, rang every change and took care of every technological collapse and, and all the rest of it. <laughs> uh, Donnie, we were talking before about Tim Payne and you went back and read a piece that Brett Jeeves wrote about Payne when he was selected for the test side last year and it feels like a decent reference point to what he had to do yesterday when he had to really scrap. That's right. He was 11 years old when he played his first third grade match down in Tasmania. Brett Jeeves was playing in the match as a 14-year-old. He called himself a, a middle-order batsman and a terrible leg spinner at the time. And Jeeves, as the 14-year-old, was averaging 35 with the, the bat and 445 with the ball. So he thought, oh, this 11-year-old in the full kookaburra kit, he looked immaculate, cocky, walking out to bat against... Three jailbirds. So one of the, the opening bowlers, I, I believe it was um, armed robbery that he had done time for. Tattoos everywhere, charging in, and they just kept on what, bowling. What, in under-14s? How did he have tattoos in under fourteen? No, no, this is, this is third-grade third senior oh, okay. cricket, right. and this was Tim Payne's very first match. He was an 11-year-old wow. like child prodigy. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Came out to bat, and the first ball has thumped into the keeper's gloves, still on the rise, 25 metres back, and Tim Payne just sort of watched it go past. They tried to knock his head off, didn't work, and eventually these three tear-away, lunatic fast bowlers resorted to trying to hit the top of off stump, 
couldn't do it. Tim Payne batted through the the entire day as an eleven year old, and just the the composure and the the guts to be able to bat that out. You look at that, 196 deliveries, 194 deliveries that he faced yesterday for for his 61. It might not have been as daunting as three jailbirds trying to knock your head off as an 11-year-old, but it's some of the hardest conditions you're ever likely to face. And he just was out there and he batted beautifully. Yeah, I mentioned before he burdened, he, he wore the majority of the responsibility after he joined Kawaja due to the fact that Kawaja was fatigued. Uh, but Jeff, we shouldn't be surprised. Leading into this test match, since Payne came back into the test side, he averaged 100 balls per dismissal. So even though he's never made a test 100 and he's, you know, never been the, maybe the, the top scorer in a test side, well, he probably has been, but you know, he's never been the guy you would, you, would, he's not Adam Gilchrist is probably what I'm trying to say here. Mm. But what we do know is that he can play a long innings. He was the perfect uh, man to ride shotgun with Kawaja leading into that final session. Yeah, well, he's done it uh, a number of times. Johannesburg was one particular example where he and Pat Cummins put together a big partnership and made a half century in, in tough conditions there um, throughout the Ashes a few times. We, we saw him really dig in. So it's not necessarily a surprise. He, he's averaged over 50, hasn't he, since he came back into the, the test side well in, yeah. in 2017. Quite a few not-outs in there, but he's got the not-outs because he's been the one who's held things together when he's had to bat with the tail and done it a number of times. And there were a couple of other players involved in the in the rescue effort. Let's start with Travis Head, uh, the man on debut, Dono. Uh, Travis got out, uh, he was set up beautifully by Bill Alasif in the first innings. He had to play at eight deliveries, and the ninth one he didn't need to play out, and he edged it into the cordon. Second time around, it took him 13 balls to get off the mark. So, you know, he's by this point faced 22 balls in Test cricket without a run. He'd be petrified of bagging a pair first up and being only the fourth person in Test cricket to do that. Uh, but instead, he, he found a way through uh, and, and made a half century on, on debut. He probably should have went on and made 100, but that's another story. But again, you, you know, you can understand watching him bat in that second innings why uh, people who are much more adept at picking talent than us have been saying for such a long time that he's going to play a lot of test cricket. Yeah, he's always had the ability, when he first started in the South Australian team, I think he scored four or five scores in the 90s before he made his, his debut century. So he's always been able to bat long. That, that first innings... He got the outside edge. He was beaten by a better bowler, a, a better cricketer at the time, at that point in time. Yep. Someone outthought him. And then he came out, and as you said, he faced 13 deliveries before getting off the mark in the second innings. He was 34 not out overnight. And we spoke to him after the day's play, and he was talking about the, the technique and the fact that he's okay if he gets beaten on the outside edge because he wants to be able to play the line of the ball rather than playing for the spin. When he did get dismissed by Mohamed Hafiz LBW in that second innings, it beat the inside edge. He's going to be extremely disappointed with that, but it just shows that he's got the concentration, but there still is a little way to go in making sure that after a break with the new ball, when an off-spinner had a part-time off-spinner has the ball in hand, you still have to concentrate just as hard as when you've got Yassi Shah spinning it on a, a raging turner. But it also shows the quality of Mohamed Afiz and the, the decision-making at that point of Safraz Ahmed, whose tactics were questionable at times, but that was a smart one. Brought Hafiz on with the new ball straight after lunch, knew that the, uh, this, the bat- batsman hadn't settled yet. And that's exactly what Hafiz has done so many times, is get a new ball to skid on. He bowls with this 
this quick arm action and gets it through. And, you know, he's had his, his troubles with the um, biomechanic uh, adjudicators over the years, <laughs> but he's, he's made it, made his comebacks from that as well. Um, and he was, he was tremendous in this match. That hundred he made in the first innings on recall, hadn't played for a couple of years. Um, and, and first up day one bags a big century. Uh, and then the way he contributed with the ball as well. So you're facing a very smart cricketer, 37 years of age. He's played a lot of test cricket. He, he played within Zamar Mulhak and he played with his nephew in this match, Zamar <laughs> Mulhak. So that's how long he's been around. So you can't necessarily blame yourself if you're Travis Head. Also, we should say that, um, you, if you want to hear those interviews, you can jump on the wisdom.com podcast feed and you you'll, and you'll find all those, uh, post play interviews that we did that we're referring to. Yeah. Every day after play, we recorded a, a post play podcast. So you can jump on there and, and retrospectively see, hear how close we were to the mark with our various predictions. Speaking of experienced spinners and experienced cricketers, Nathan Lyon is the most experienced player in his Australian lineup in terms of tests played. And he was as important as anyone at the end because good enough for Tim Payne and, and Usman Khawaja to do what they needed to do, unless they've got the support of the lower order, with the ball spinning around under all that pressure, men around the bat everywhere, that, that field they set at the end, so daunting. Yeah. And there was Lyon, as solid as anybody, in a defence that he's been honing. I was talking to him before. He, he said that through the winter, he's been batting a lot with his brother, Brendan, who, um, uh, who, uh, who is a professional cricket coach. Uh, that's his day job. Right. And that's, that's who's got his defence huh. absolutely spot on. And that played such a massive role in what he was able to do yesterday. Because he didn't look uh, really at risk, really any delivery that he faced. Actually, Tim Payne had a few more Close calls than the Nathan Lyon did. Payne was almost bowled twice in in that last uh, those those sort of late overs. Like I said yesterday, he made a five from thirty four that uh, that was probably more important than any five for thirty four that he might have taken with the ball. <laughs> Hearing Justin Langer talk Jeff yesterday, he's really making a, a huge effort to emphasise that he wants Australian cricketers who are happy with a smile on their face. He said about Kawaja specifically, who are good human beings, who are fit, and he thinks the rest will basically take care of itself. It's a good message. Usman Khawaja, he's dropped seven kilos since the South Africa tour. He is the epitome of the, the Justin Langer approach. Aaron Finch as well. He is in the best condition of his life. And the players, as you said, put a smile on your face. Be a good human. They're the things that Justin Langer wants the, the Australian players to be. And look, there's been a lot of talk about the the damage to the reputation of the Australian cricket team that happened in South Africa, but not just in South Africa. In the lead up to that, with the the sledging and uh, and all of that, in the build up to this explosion of the uh, the ball tampering, and Justin Langer really is the perfect person just to come in and say, right, we need to we need to make sure that everyone respects the role that they're playing within the team, and we need to make sure that everyone is being as good a human as they can possibly be, and everything will fall into place after that. Yeah, which doesn't mean, Jeff, that he won't be scrutinised closely for decisions that he makes and that he won't suffer criticism along those lines too. And he said some things which have lent themselves to parody, but looking at the messaging, it's where the Australian cricket team needs to be right now to start rebuilding that reputation. Yeah, I mean, the messaging is good and, and they do need to rebuild that reputation. The one, the blind spot I think Justin Langer has is that he doesn't recognise how far back the problems go with the Australian team. When he did an interview with Nasser Hussain over the Australian winter when Australia was playing over there, sort of saying that when he played, that Australian team were was respected because they played hard and tough and fair. They weren't respected. They were respected for being good players, but they were not liked, really, because they were so abrasive and, and abusive on the mm. field. That's something that... I mean, that's just 
a fact that's very easily verified, but that's something that he wouldn't accept that that was the case. He sort of has has an idea that everything was fine when he played and that things went wrong in the last two years. Things didn't go wrong in the last two years. They went wrong in the last 20 at best. Uh, the reason why Australia, Jeff, drew the test match and never could realistically win it was due to the fact that they had a 10 for 60 collapse in the first innings and a, a 3 for naught collapse in the second. It remains a, a, an obvious talking point. It's something that's been a feature of the last few years, especially, um, well, I mean, how far do you want to go back? Cape Town, the 47 in Cape Town, That's maybe that's where it starts. I, I'm mm. not sure if there are another couple before that, but there have been so many through that period that, uh, 2014 at Port Elizabeth, uh, 2015 in, in the Ashes, a couple there, 2016 Sri Lanka, uh, 2016 against South Africa when they visited. But hadn't they got hold of this? Just to, sorry to cut you off, but hadn't, hadn't this been dealt with to an extent? Like Smith, uh, Smith, uh, specifically Steve Smith, spoke a lot about this in Bangladesh last year. He did. He, they went to the Ashes. And he did. And he England. went to the Ashes and he said they'd had 15 collapses in their last... 14 games, possibly, yep, something, something like, like that. that. And then they didn't have a collapse in the Ashes. And in the first couple of test matches of the of the South Africa series, they avoided cataclysmic collapses anyway, with the exception of possibly the first dig at Port Elizabeth. I, and, and that's where I would I would pin it to. So they got through right. the Ashes and they got through Durban, thanks uh, only to Mitchell Marsh, Mitchell Marsh who, yeah. who played a, a great hand there. But... Um, that's six test matches, and five of them were at home. So I think sure. we thought they'd fixed the problem just because <laughs> it hadn't happened for a little while. But looking back, that was probably naive of us to say, oh, no, everything's fine now. Because because in the Ashes, it was all based on... In Brisbane, it was Steve Smith um, playing an absolutely absurd hand to be able to, to, to bat through the amount of time he did, and he got some support from Sean Marsh in the lower order. Um, but the top order still collapsed. They were fourth of 76, I think, in Brisbane. Mm-hmm. Um, in Adelaide, it was Sean Marsh playing that hand, uh, making that 100 when the others went around him. So it, it wasn't like everything was running smoothly. Yes, they managed to stop the collapses and, and glue it up enough with, with the lower order, but that doesn't mean the problem had been solved. And, uh, you know, as we saw here... The problem reared its head again, and that's with three debutants in the top six. So that's a almost entirely new batting order. But when when the pressure was on, um, they fell apart. And with the ball, I'm just thrilled that Peter Siddle got through unscathed. I've got to say, my major fear coming in when Siddle was recalled is that he would break down. Didn't he? Didn't just get through unscathed. He bowled beautifully in the first innings. He was economical. He took wickets at the start. We not at the start because they put on 205 as the punch. Let's <laughs> not get carried away. But he, he he got it going in the right direction. In as they, much as the first day is the start of the Test match, he yes, got wickets indeed. at the start. Uh, and you know he proved again that he he's there was a place for Peter Siddle on the international stage. Absolutely, and he also I mean he showed that he. What a good exponent of reverse swing he is, which yeah. is something I spoke to him about it um, that that day at Stumps, and and said he's always had that in his kit bag. He used it when he got the hat trick in, in the Ashes Test in Brisbane. It was the reverse with the ball, but um, he said basically he hasn't m- had much had the chance to bowl with the reversing ball because he's been in a team with a couple of bowlers who are ranked ahead of him and they, they're the ones who get the use of it. So he finally had the opportunity and showed that he has that skill. I uh, don't know, I mentioned Nathan Lyon before. He went past Lance Gibbs. He now has 310 test wickets. He'll pass Brett Lee and Mitchell Johnson next week as well, more than likely. Yeah, there was a lot of talk in the, the wisdom.com call about Nathan Lyon bowling ugly. Now, that's a, a term that, that I believe that he has, has used not necessarily to describe anything that's not aesthetically pleasing, but just to describe a slight change in the way that he bowls. He, he's a very tall off spinner in the, in that he releases the ball from a, a, a very high point and he uses that overspin. We saw Bilal Asif use his wrist and he was causing issues when he was getting that top spin on these decks. 
Nathan Lyon didn't really cause too many issues with bounce and turn, but he was very, very accurate. He bowled 52 overs, I think it was, in the first innings, and he just he just kept on keeping things tight, keeping things tight. He was always a threat, but he was he just didn't quite get that extra bounce that he that his action can get. On a, on a deck which is a little bit more conducive to, to that for him. Uh, Mitchell Stark didn't uh, didn't get the wickets that his bowling would necessarily suggest he will. He'll, he'll, he'll get, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, but he'll take more wickets bowling worse than he did uh, in Dubai. John Holland, though, Jeff, is probably uh, the bowler who took the most out of the second innings. It was a it was a declaration innings. They're always going to pull a pin at some point, but three wickets gets him in the test match after a poor first day back. Yeah, he struggled on, on day one, and you can understand that. It's a tough gig being Australia's second spinner because it's like, okay, Okay, you're playing here and, and maybe next week and then you might not play another test match for two years. <laughs> you know, yeah. when do they next tour in the subcontinent and, and when's the second spinner going to be called upon? And even the days of the second spinner at Sydney have largely departed unless it's an indulgence like uh, that sort of that West Indies test with Steve O'Keefe coming in. That only happened because Australia had won the series comfortably and there was no reason not to and, and they were trying to prepare for upcoming Asian engagements. So it's, it's very difficult. You come in on the back of having played two tests in 2016 and that's it nervous wanting to make an impression and knowing that you can be pushed out of the team very quickly and and probably will be so you're, you're on a hiding to nothing almost as Australia's second spinner and he struggled on day one and Pakistan knew this would be the case and they went after him relentlessly it's quite an odd situation that Australia now go to Abu Dhabi next week they're not favorites let's not get carried away here but if they win the toss, if they yeah, if they win the toss, who knows? And to think that we would have said that 48 hours ago when they were 280 runs behind on the first innings, um, they were 325 runs behind at stumps on day three. Uh, that they managed to get to a stage where, well, it might have been stumps on day four, I should say. Either way, the point is, is that they they have now got themselves. It was both. They were 325 behind at stumps on day three and day four. There you go. I knew that number stuck out for some reason. Because uh, both teams made 136 for three on on day four. They, they go up the road and and to talk to reflect on. Pakistan's week, um, Jeff, the, the, the Cardiff example from 2009 jumps out at me. Australia played the perfect test match at Cardiff. They couldn't get the job done on the final day. And as a consequence, uh, the sting was taken out of their campaign and, it, and England rolled through them and ended yeah. up winning the series fairly convincingly. Um, I wonder how hard it will be for Safraz Ahmed to get his charges back up to play a test match in four days, knowing that they were, you know, an inch away from taking the series 1-0, or well, taking yeah. it to being 1-0 up in the series, I should say. And it wasn't an issue with needing to declare earlier because, you know, basically you can't bowl more than about five sessions at the end of a test match and expect your bowlers to maintain any level of quality, you know, by that stage. Maybe with Pakistan they've got a few more bowling options, but still, you leave yourself five sessions, that should be more than enough. The runs were always going to be too much, and so Pakistan should, just by the odds, by the statistics, should have won that game, And but perhaps they sort of rolled up expecting that to happen, and it seemed like that at times, that Safraz was letting the game drift. Uh, he had the sweepers out um, very early in the innings for batsmen. He had sweepers out when there was no need to. On that third day, when Australia was still 300-odd runs behind, You know, surely you could afford to just attack, attack, attack. Yeah, it was the start of day five, don't know, that jumped out at me. They, they, they were sloppy in the field. There was no urgency between overs. They could have bowled far more than 90 overs on day five, but instead they only had enough time for 31 in the final session, and even that was 20 minutes late. Like, there's something you missed yeah. there. Well, tw- 29 in the first session. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't believe that is how it played out. I'm, I'm mindful of how hot it is, and, and, and it would have been tough yards at the end of a test match, but they had a chance to get 
a lot more overs in, and they just plainly didn't take it. And the interesting part about that was that it wasn't due to an over-reliance on the, the non-spin bowlers. Like Mohamed Abbas probably didn't bowl enough during the, the most crucial times, and the game was allowed to drift. Jeff, you spoke to Safraz Ahmed after play, and you asked him about his field settings, and it was interesting listening to Safraz, and he was saying, oh, yes, we had men, uh, we had three men on the boundary, but we had four men around the bat, and we needed those men on the boundary to, to stop the runs. Australia Why? were never going to make the runs. Yeah. The only reason they got anywhere remotely close is because there were men on the boundary to provide an outlet to play yeah. a cut shot or tuck into the leg side and just take that easy single. There were singles and twos all day and, and Kawadra was um, prolific there and you know he said that was an important part of why he survived for so long because he wasn't trying to defend. He said he was just trying to bat, just just play it normally, don't think about the draw, don't think about anything, just bat, just hit the ball. Um, and that's why he was able to, to play as long as he did. So I think Safraz, so, uh, you could imagine that it was just supposed to happen at some point the week would have come, but uh, that didn't work. And so he's, in retrospect, there are, there are faults there. Yeah, and still plenty of positives for Pakistan, we should say. Sohail uh, making his first, Harris Sohail making his first ton in Test cricket mm-hmm. in his sixth Test match. Uh, Yassi Shah's into the series now with four wickets on the final day. He was struggling Wasn't earlier on. On the final day. Yeah, he, re- he really flicked the switch, didn't he? Struggled for a while and then he trapped Manus Labashain and suddenly bang. You know, he, he always reminds me of a rabbit, the way he bounced into bowl and suddenly he was up and up and about jumping around and, and uh, fizzing them down again. And Dono, Mohamed Abbas was immense, not just for the way that he got the new ball to move around, the way that he did in England this summer, but it was with the old ball as well. He's got a very deep bag of tricks. Yeah, and it's someone that in the conditions that we saw, he would have liked, I think, the pitch to be a little bit more abrasive so that they could get that ball reversing a little bit earlier. We were expecting the ball to go... A, a bit earlier, we were talking in the in the call about maybe in the 35th over, and sometimes it started to, but it wasn't really until the 50th over a lot of the times when it would really start to to reverse and cause issues for for the batsmen. So, but Mohammad Abbas, he there's the the stat that was quoted a number of times on the call about him being one of the most accurate bowlers mm. in Test cricket since his debut, and he just puts the ball right on a spot and makes you play every single ball. And you talked earlier about Usman Khawaja doing something to break up that line. And that was probably one of the biggest moments in the test match because Mohamed Abbas, as great as he was, wasn't able to to react to that. He's got 49 test wickets in nine test matches. So at if, 16. At yeah. 16, yeah. If he takes... Well, so he's, if, he's, he's, he's sixth on the all-time bowling average list at the moment and the five blokes ahead of him played in the 1800s. Yeah, it gives you, you know. a good flavour for it, doesn't it? Uh, Jeff, Mohamed Afiz, you already talked about his bowling, but... Coming back into the test side after two years out of contention, yep. um, he didn't always handle that in, in diplomatic, in the most diplomatic way. But he's back. He made it. Well, t- he called a press conference to yell at the selectors, and then he didn't yell at the selectors. He then <laughs> made a statement to say that he was available for Pakistan at any time if they would choose to select him, and so they did. A, a two hundred and five run over with a mum al Haq, who the young man made seventy six in his yes. first innings. He's out of the test at Abu Dhabi due to a, a hand injury. Broke his finger um, diving to stop the ball in, in the Australia's final innings, which could be quite significant as well. So a bit of a mixed bag for Pakistan, as it was for Australia which is why we had the drawn result. Imam was um, ropey early, I thought. He was coming down the wicket a lot, but looking um, 
a bit unsure and, and not quite hitting them cleanly, but uh, he battled on and, and eventually started to click, whacked a couple of sixes, which Hafiz couldn't do on the first day. That opening stand of 205, you, you come back just after the tea break on day one and the openers are put on over 200 and you think, this is going to be painful. This is this is the 2014 tour all over again. Australia are going to get absolutely flogged here. And then <laughs> somehow they found a way to claw back in, took three wickets in that final session on the first day. And then the second day, the same again. Harris Sahail makes 100. Asad Shafiq makes a beautiful 80. Oh, yeah. um, they put on 150 and you think, all right, <laughs> now Australia's going to get flogged again. And then the wickets start to come just before tea on day two and Australia drag themselves back in once more. We talked a little bit about Peter Siddle earlier and Jeff talking about the the 200 run openings. It was Peter Siddle in the third session on day one who really dragged things back Australia's way with his bowling. He was tight. He was not letting anyone get any easy runs. It was uh, a slow session. It was three for 56 the Australians took. And that, I think, was the moment where they realised whatever happens, we're not dead. We're, we're never out of this game, even when there's a 200-run partnership, yep. even when we're 325 runs behind. And as you said, the third session on every single day was when the Australians turned things around. The Pakistanis dominated the first two sessions, day one and day two, and then the, the Australians were able to, to come back. And rewarded for that resilience, Australia go down the freeway, uh, to Abu Dhabi next week with the Ledger Square at zero tests apiece. Zero tests apiece. That means whoever wins the next one could win the series. What is the series called, Jeff? Uh, what is the series called? I know what the trophy's called. The, it's the, the, Jubilee. It's the, the Jubilee Insurance Presents Brighto Paints uh, trophy. <laughs> and that is the big one that everybody wants, wants in the cabinet. The unveiling ceremony was something special. I tell you what, Matt Tim Paint's face when he took the cloth off the trophy, which is covered in, in daubs of uh, bright Brighto paint, it was, um, was extraordinary. <laughs> There's the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, joined by Andrew Donison as well. well. We'll wrap it up there. We'll leave it there for the episode. It's been a long conversation. I'm absolutely exhausted. You can probably tell by my voice and my general lethargy on the podcast today that I need to have a good long sleep, and that's what I plan to do. Uh, but again, Jeff, we just want to thank all the people who've supported us uh, over the last week or so in pulling this whole thing together. Well, it's a long a long roll call, but, uh, you know, wisdom.com uh, for putting the call out. They've done tremendous work there. Um, Felix White for doing the tunes, particularly. Yes. Uh, he has been unrecognised at times this week and should have been. Um, all the guys at Crickviz for doing our stats. Yasrana, who's done our social media. John Michael at Broadcast Radio for making sure everything worked. And gee whiz, that was a struggle, what we got there in the end. We mentioned them on the Wisdom podcast last night, but it's worth repeating. Our commercial partners as well. We, we, we were been really backed in. And last but not least, the people who've loyally listened in, tweeted us, got in touch and kept our morale high as we've gone through the week. Of course, remember that uh, discount subscription offer. Go to wisdom.com forward slash final word for 30% off your digital subscription to Wisdom Cricket Monthly. Well worth doing. Thanks to Andrew Donison too, who uh, came over and produced the first test match and will do the second as well. He's been uh, a titan. Yes, he certainly has. We've got more to do. We've also got more to do on The Final Word. As we said at the start, this is the start of a new season of The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Uh, thanks for subscribing. Thanks for being part of it. Tell your mates. And we will, I guess we'll, we'll we, talk We've to got you. a fair season ahead because we've got this. We've got the second test. We'll do stuff on what's happened the last six months. And then we'll have the Australian Home Summer ahead where we'll both be around. Yeah. We've got the Women's World women's T20, World T20 in, yep. in, in, in November as well where we'll probably try to do something long distance if we can pull it together. <laughs> it's, it's a difficult a long distance 
relationship, but we're making it work, guys. We're, we're putting in the effort. <laughs> um, and then December, uh, you'll be back in Australia and so yep. will I, and, and we'll be rolling through the home summer. So the final word should be coming to you pretty regularly and uh, make sure you stay tuned. And then through to next year, it does not stop. We go straight through to the World Cup. Can't stop, won't stop. Can't, can't stop, won't stop. World Cup fired by the Ashes. So I suspect uh, Season 5 of the final will be a very long season indeed. Oh, it's Thanks. going to be very long. We, uh, we're going to almost be the same person by the end of it. We will have just merged into one sort of conglomerate entity with eight limbs and two voices. Couldn't ask for anything more. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Farewell. Sorry if I ran out to empty wrote this so you know what I meant here. I had to go about it, write it out and find